I've been doing a lot of thinking about the relationship between medical groups and their members. In part, this was brought on by revisiting a case called the Carlisle case, which was discussed in the healthcare press as a False Claims Act case or as one of the rare cases that construes the Stark Law. But the case contains a real issue as to the relationship between a group and its physicians. The Carlisle case is a whistleblower case. The whistleblower was a partner in the medical group which benefited from a sweetheart deal with a hospital. After years of receiving a share of the benefit, the whistleblower left the group, started a competing practice, and brought the False Claims Act case implicating his former partners in violations of both Stark and the False Claims Act. Certainly, one lesson here is to pick your partners carefully. Another trigger for my thinking about the relationship between groups and their members is an incident involving a group which, for a number of years, had paid one of its members a fixed monthly payment. We're talking about more than mid-five figures each month. All of the other subcontractors were paid on a pure unit production basis. Running a group is akin to managing a baseball team. Not every player and not every doctor should be paid the same amount each month. They shouldn't be treated equally in terms of benefits. Stars must be rewarded for being stars, or the stars will leave. Merely competent subcontractors, and by that I'm not referring to their level of medical skills, more on that in a moment, must have an incentive to improve and earn star money. So what makes someone a star? It's not having superior medical skills. Having that level of skills should simply be the bare minimum, the, the basic qualification for engagement by your group. Instead, to be a star, the physician has to have an understanding of the business and interpersonal skills it takes for the group to succeed. They have to understand what it takes to further the group's relationships with referring physicians and other sources, to understand how to relate to patients, not simply avoid complaints, but to ensure their delight, and to understand that they can't interfere with the relationship between the group and the hospital. Now, in the example of the physician who's receiving the large flat fee, he began putting pressure on the group to be made a partner. Uh, but in reality, he wasn't a star. In furtherance of his campaign for partnership, he met directly with the hospital CEO, creating significant damage in the relationship between the group and the hospital. Groups must compensate and retain physicians by playing to their self-interests, but only if that self-interest can be channeled by the physician back to support the group's overall business interests. If that can't be done, then why continue the relationship? A second example shed some additional light on this issue. I was recently asked in an educational setting whether a partner in a group could opt out of a managed care agreement that his group was entering into. It appeared he didn't like the level of reimbursement. I asked what the payor thought about the idea and was told the payor didn't care. All of the group's other providers would be listed as participating physicians. This one partner would not. Now, aside from the issue of how this was going to interfere with scheduling and with the relationship between the group and referring physicians in the hospital, which I thought were significant, I replied that I thought that the more important issue was something else. It's whether a group can continue to be a group if a partner can chart his or her own business course. But the real question that should be asked is whether a group is a group 
if it allows individual partners to make their own decisions about what are really group-wide issues. By allowing this one doctor to make this choice independently, the group is ceasing to remain a group one step at a time. In tough economic times, groups that want to succeed need to make basic decisions. First, they need to accept the fact that they must cut dead weight. That is, group members, whether owners, employees, or subcontractors, who don't understand that they must subsume their own self-interest to the greater good of the group. Second, groups must become aggressive in terms of pursuing new business opportunities because most of their competitors will be too shell-shocked by the bad news of the economy to take any aggressive competitive action. But none of this is possible if the group is allowing itself to disintegrate. It must remain a group to compete at all. 